I'm Thanasi Kambanis, and you're listening to the Order from Ashes podcast from Century International. You haven't heard from us for a while because we've been preparing a new season for you that's coming up in April on transnational trends and citizenship. We'll tell you more about that later. But meanwhile, uh, with your regular podcast, I'm here today with Dahlia Scheinlin, a fellow at Century International who has a big report coming out or that should be out by the time you listen to this podcast on the Abraham records and how they could be transformed into something progressive. Dahlia, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Thanasi. Always nice to talk with you. So let's just go right into the, right into the meat of your critique analysis and argument. What's wrong with the Abraham accords? That's a very good question. I think that for many people, they were seen as really the best thing that's happened in the region in so long. Uh, many people sort of watched the headlines and watched the signing ceremonies and thought, we haven't had peace agreements in so long in this region. Isn't this a great thing? Um, I'm arguing that in a way, these accords actually give an entirely new meaning to the concept of peace that has very little to do with ending a war, considering Israel was not at war with these countries to begin with. Um, and the fact is that the the uh, relation, given the relationship between the different countries, uh, and maybe we should just list them. As the accords were signed with four different countries, as a matter of fact, with United Arab between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, Israel and Bahrain, Israel and Morocco, and Israel and Sudan. Um, and none and of this these was will actually historic because because these are the first, aren't these the first uh, significant Arab recognitions of Israel since uh, uh, Camp since David? Since the peace treaty and, with, and yeah, Jordan, the peace treaty Egypt, with Jordan. Right? Yes, exactly. So, in, you know, in, in, in the face of it, this is, seems like a very good thing. And it, not, it need not necessarily be a bad thing in the long term, but in the short term, what it's essentially doing is calling itself the, the fundamental concept of a peace accord when there was actually no real war, but, you know, between them, not even a, not, there wasn't any war between them to begin with. And marginalizing the two peoples of the regions who most desperately need to make peace and reach an accord, which is Israel and the Palestinians. And, you know, it's completely kind of sidelined the Palestinian issue. And so for that reason, there was a great deal of controversy about them. But my critique goes a little bit further. My critique is when you think about what the accords are actually turning out to be, the first critique that I'm pointing out that they don't help advance peace between Israel and the Palestinians is just one problem with them. You know, another is that these are essentially, you know, a group of countries that all have severe democratic deficits in different ways. Um, I don't want to, you know, make it seem as if they're all lacking in the same way when it comes to democracy. But, you know, the Gulf states are essentially a form of authoritarian societies. Uh, Morocco is partially free and Sudan is in a, a very difficult situation right now with a military coup underway for months since the fall of 2021. And this is bolstering Israel's, you know, alliances with the group of countries that it has been cultivating ever since the Netanyahu years. Of course, there is a historic basis for this too. It wasn't new under Netanyahu. But developing a web of international alliances that are undemocratic countries, some of them are, you know, various stages of authoritarian societies. And they, I think that, you know, there's an old saying that if you want to know, you know, who you are, look at who your friends are. Uh, I think there's a danger here that these countries reinforce each other's values, reinforce each other's practices, and not only that, but facilitate the mechanisms of undemocratic and authoritarian control. And I'm talking particularly about the sale of technology or weapons, which are part of the products of these accords, is the facilitation of the sale, whether it's between Israel and those countries or from the US to some of those countries. 
yeah, I, I want to I want to underscore a point uh, that's central to what I think you're arguing here before before we move on to these other important follow on things about the militarization and the uh, of the region and the and the weapons deals. So, the at its heart, the 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 problem with these accords is one. Uh, the complete sidelining of Palestinians, right? So the occupation continues. Uh, Israel uh, uh, continues, as you've documented in a lot of your work, to function as a democracy only for certain uh, of its Jewish uh, citizens. Which um, I find and, an oxymoron uh, to mean, begin with. You can't be a democracy for some citizens and not others, or some uh, subjects. Uh, exactly, exactly. And and so uh, what this what these accords do is they really cement something that's been in 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 progress since really uh, uh, the Oslo Accords began to atrophy, and that's Arab states uh, that are not democratic either, uh, making intelligence and military pacts with Israel. Previously, they were doing so quietly, um, and 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 really not even pretending uh, to factor in Palestinian uh, self-determination, Palestinian rights, or the end of the occupation into, into their foreign policy. Uh, and I think this is what was such a jolt um, to people in the region and to, and to people in the United States who support uh, some kind of resolution of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, that, that, that these accords say actually uh, a lot of the most powerful states and governments in the region are moving on and no longer even considering uh, uh, Palestin Palestinians as, as an issue that needs to be addressed. Right. I mean, that's certainly one of the things that was so heavily embraced by the Israeli right wing. And Netanyahu himself saying, you know, we don't have to do anything in order to get normalization agreements in the Middle East. We don't have to give up anything. Nobody's asking us to. And I think for the Palestinians, you know, their criticism was, you know, was visceral, but it was also not exactly, I think, shocked. I think Palestinians, we know from survey research and anecdotally, have thought for years that most Arab countries have kind of you know sidelined or marginalized their cause. But those two points, marginalizing the Israeli-Palestinian conflict resolution process, if there ever is to be one, as well as you know uh, the club of non uh, um, flawed or non-democratic countries supporting one another, not only I'd uh, say the, morally, the, but the, technically, the, those the are club only of two. militant authoritarians. But you can you call it what you want. Yeah, I think there's uh, a lot to be said for that uh, label. I'm just cautious about painting them all with the same brush because it manifests in such different ways. And I don't want to diminish those very different kinds of political systems. There are. But what my point is that those are only two of the critiques. And there are two other areas where I think that, uh, you know, for the most part, there hasn't been sufficient attention paid to, you know, the, pr the troubling aspects of these accords on two more points. And one is, you know, many people th I think see as a good point, which is that you know, there is uh, an alliance of countries in the Middle East who are bolstering the axis of countries that are that are against Iran and they're trying to limit the capacity of Iran. And certainly I'm not coming out against the need to limit, you know, uh, uh, the development of nuclear weapons or Iran's militant actions in the region that are destabilizing. Having said that, I think there's, you know, something that we're all watching play out right now in the European theater is that there's nothing very salutary about developing these very, very hard and fixed binary axes in a region that are, you know, that involves lots of power, uh, countries lining up uh, with one another in a big, in, in big binary alliances that are, you know, highly militarized and becoming more militarized and riling each other, each other up towards some sort of a confrontation. That is not a healthy dynamic. And that is what these accords certainly contribute to because they are developing the perception and of course the alliances and the, um, you know, the economic and military infrastructure to deepen 
that bifurcated, that, you know, the sense of a bifurcated axis, a, a group of countries around the Middle East facing each other off or, or forces as well. So that's one thing that's pro- another thing that I think is problematic. Um, and I would say also that goes against, to some extent, that is uh, a challenge to the process underway right now in Vienna, as we speak of, uh, you know, we'll see what happens with it with regard to the, uh, you know, Russia-Ukraine conflict. But there have apparently been some steps towards the possible rehabilitation of a diplomatic Resol- you know, deal. I won't, I won't say resolution, but a diplomatic deal. You're talking Diplomacy about the Iran. It's supposed to contain deal. conflicts for you know between uh, you know the the uh, the Western powers and Iran in order to contain their development of nuclear weapons. And I think that ties into the final critique, which is that everything about the accords is not really contributing to strengthening the international system. And I think that we've come to see this as some sort of a clinical term referring to something that people may find abstract. But the very fact of using diplomacy to contain conflicts is the heart of the international system. Uh, solving conflicts by military force is destroying the international system. That's what we're seeing playing out in Russia and Ukraine. But in little ways that were below the radar, the Abraham Accords contributed to the weakening of some of the norms of the international system. Uh, and what I mean by that is, again, if they undercut uh, approaches to diplomacy for containing Iran, that's one example. But also we see that in the in the course of the Trump administration, uh, Trump recognized a number of cases in which Israel conquered territory by force during the 1967 war, and then through the Abraham Accords, recognized Morocco's sovereignty over Western Sahara, a, a disputed region since 1975. Uh, and by coming along and basically saying, we recognize Morocco's sovereignty over Western Sahara, it's saying Morocco marched in with its military and conquered this area, which is undermining self-determination for the people of that region. And we, the U.S., think that's just great because we want to sacrifice these fundamental principles of the international system, which allow for right to self-determination um, and uh, you know, pr- uh, prohibits taking territory by force because we have other interests. So those things aren't that important. And in truth, the rest of the world forgot about that pretty quickly, you know, and it is off the radar. But it almost sparked a new escalation. A lot of the world, Dahlia, as you know, paid close attention to that. And, and I think Vladimir Putin might be one one person who did. Um, and that that was a huge, uh, although much not much talked about, reversal of longstanding U.S. foreign policy. We do not, Absolutely. as a government in the United States, uh, uh, you know, recognize the the seizing of, of sovereign foreign territory by force. And yet, uh, and that's why for, for, you know, 25, 35 years, uh, the United States did not recognize, uh, the Western Sahara as, as a Moroccan territory. And to suddenly trade that away, as you said, in exchange for, a, for a normalization deal between Morocco and Israel, uh, it, that that's about a lot more than just the U S investment in Israel's role in the Arab world. That's a, an investment by the U S perhaps unintentional in a a law of the jungle instead of, of an international liberal order. Well, I have no doubt that Vladimir Putin was conscious of these kinds of developments, including also uh, America's recognition of Israel conquering the Golan and its recognition of uh, the de facto uh, annexation of East Jerusalem. All of these things are points that I cite in an article that I have just published in Foreign Policy in which I argue pretty much what you're saying, that Putin is looking at these kinds of things and saying there's hypocrisy here. The international system doesn't mean anything. I'm here to destroy it. And I think that, you know, I don't want to create any moral equivalency or place the blame on anybody other than Vladimir Putin for what's going on now. But I do think that the international community has not done its part in maintaining 
you know, consistent standards of what things like sovereignty mean and what it means to say we have a prohibition on conquering territory by force in the post-war era. There's a reason for it. It's because it has reduced the threat of conventional war. And I think we need to really recommit ourselves to it. Uh, for that reason, I think if we look at the four critiques that I've tried to lay out of the Abraham Accords, my point is not, you know, these are evil, they need to be thrown, you know, uh, into the garbage. They are, despite everything, a matter of diplomacy. And I'm for diplomacy. I think that it is the infrastructure for how we eventually solve conflicts, even though in these cases, there wasn't a conflict to be to be solved, arguably with Sudan, because the relations historically were uh, more troubled. But still, there's never been a war with these countries. And I think that um, the point of this report was for me to go through in what ways these accords could deepen the kinds of critique that I've mentioned and maybe even do damage in the reason in the region. But they are also capable of being repurposed. They are, I've come to see them as a vessel uh, in thinking about the, this analysis. And this is a vessel that can be filled with better things. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying there's a lot of leeway here, but I do think they can be repurposed to contribute to advancing the basic aims that we just laid out, which I think should be, you know, the four core aims of any uh, progressive American foreign policy for sure. And I would like to see these be the aims of any foreign policy, which are, you know, advancing peace, um, uh, you know, breaking down kind of militarization uh, where there are brewing conflicts in the regional sense, strengthening the international system and strengthening democracy. And that is no less the case. In other words, these goals should be applied to the Middle East no less than anywhere else. So I'd like to think that the accords can be repurposed for that. Although again, uh, that has to be a decision, a strategic decision. It's not going to happen organically. After the break, we'll talk about your ideas about how we could uh, change change these accords or, or or fill this vessel, as you put it, uh, with with something uh, better. Uh, we'll be right back. We've got something new coming in April on the Order from Ashes podcast. A whole new season hosted by Nair Antun, the director of the Transnational Trends in Citizenship Project. Nair will be bringing you a whole season's worth of episodes featuring conversations from the participants in a project we've been working on for more than a year here at Century International. We've brought together experts on protests, gender and sexuality, police accountability, and militias, experts who work on the Middle East, North America, and Europe, to swap notes and compare findings, showing us new ways of thinking about the problems of our age. That season, Transnational Trends in Citizenship, will begin dropping episodes in April. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. You're listening to Order from Ashes, Century International's podcast. And I'm talking to Dahlia Scheinlin about the Abraham Accords, uh, the problems with them and how they might be salvaged uh, or, or filled with better, uh, different, uh, more progressive uh, uh, policy goals. So Dahlia, before the break, you you helped us spell out, you know, so, some of the core problems with these accords. Um, now, you've done a lot of thinking about how uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, could potentially lead uh, the the region in a different direction, uh, taking these accords despite their flaws and and using them to build something better. How how could that possibly unfold? What would be the pathway towards 
making these uh, these normalizations and the uh, the others uh, with other countries that are that are being st- still negotiated behind the scenes into the building blocks for achieving the four aims of progressive foreign policy that you so clearly have put your finger on. Thank you. I think that the first thing I want to point out is why I am turning to the U.S. on this issue. It's not that I, I think that you know the U.S. should come in and solve all the problems. But the argument that I made about where these accords are going, uh, if left to their own accord, so to speak, is derived from the interests of the par- partners involved. And the interests of the partners involved is to strengthen those military alliances and sell that technology and have economic you know, uh, um, relations. And so they're not thinking about advancing the kind of goals that we were talking about. And therefore, I don't think they will unless there is a powerful outside partner who prioritizes those different goals. That's why I think it's so important for the U.S. to take leadership on this. But the U.S. doesn't have to do this alone. I mean, the kinds of aims that I was just talking about uh, are, are, are very intuitively shared by America's European partners. Um, and I think there's no reason why this shouldn't be a multilateral effort to try to repurpose the Abraham Accords to try to, again, advance peace, deepen democracy, um, even though that's a bit of a stretch for the Abraham Accords, uh, demilitarize uh, the, you know, the region or reduce the military threat of these bifurcated alliances um, and, um, and strengthen the national system. So how can that happen? I think the obvious starting point, and many others have said this, it's not certainly not my own idea, is that to either deepen the relationship with the existing partners uh, of the Abraham Accords with Israel or bring in new partners, there should be an element of creating conditions for those partnerships. And the condition is that Israel takes some steps towards a future peace process that leads ultimately to a final status resolution with the Palestinians that involves ideally ending military occupation and self-determination for the Palestinians. Now, this is not a stretch at all because even under the Trump administration, the initial Abraham Accord deal with the United Arab Emirates uh, was a quid pro quo. Israel agreed under Mr. Netanyahu to suspend its formal declaration of annexation of parts of the West Bank, which it had been planning in a very detailed way to do. It even had set a date, and Netanyahu had spoken of the 1st of July, 2020. And all of that was postponed uh, in re- in return for this breakthrough normalization deal. It was very self-serving. Netanyahu was in you know very precarious political position. But the fact is, that was an important uh, uh, change. I don't want to say it was progress because it was actually simply heading off what would have been a real uh, moment of uh, watershed for deterioration in Israeli-Palestinian relations. But it was the quid pro quo, and Israel didn't have a problem with that, and it created you know short, brief headlines, and then everybody forgot about it, and nobody is complaining today that Israel hasn't annexed parts of the West Bank, with the exception of some you know f- uh, very extreme settlers. Um, well, and, yeah, and I think yeah. I think your idea is that there is leverage to be had. For example, if Saudi exactly. Arabia uh, were were to enter into a normalization agreement with with Israel, it could y- use the carrot of its of its uh, recognition, which would be a really big deal, to exact some real concessions. Now, the the problem, uh, you know, which is at the heart of these accords and at the heart of of the more endemic challenge for progressive goals in the region, is that. Uh, these states will use their leverage for things they value. And unfortunately, the things they value are not, for the most part, the four planks of a progressive Middle East foreign policy uh, that that we're talking about. So the things that they're interested in are, uh, let's say, access to Pegasus, the surveillance software that allows states to listen to people's phones, uh, or perhaps weapons contracts, uh, or intelligence cooperation, the kinds of things that they are, uh, that, that these, that these Gulf states, uh, have been 
uh, uh, building in, into their relationships with Israel. Uh, and I think that's, um, that's where we're going to see a, a bit of a, of a, of a limit, uh, on your four point list. Um, I think there's two that are probably non-starters, uh, uh, in, in the practical world. Although I think it's really important to set these out as markers. I mean, when we talk about what a progressive foreign policy would look like, what better, uh, normalization accords would look like, it's okay to spell out things that aren't likely to happen in the next couple of years. Cause we want to say, this is, this is our position. This is our goal. Um, I say it's aspirational, you, you know, it's not a perfect world, but there are, there are aspirational values that can be the signpost for where these can go. If we're to repurpose them, what is the path we want them to go on? Even if we don't get all the way there. And right. And, and that's exactly why I think this is such a useful way to frame it because, okay, the Gulf monarchs are not going to push for reducing militarization at a time when they are ramping up militarization and engaging in huge weapons uh, buying sprees. Uh, and they're not going to support democracy. They themselves are uh, hereditary monarchies. They're quite autocratic uh, internally. So those two, they're probably not that interested in. The other two, they might be. Uh, Israeli-Palestinian peace, uh, uh, they do have some perhaps, you know, soft, perhaps reluctant uh, interest in seeing justice for Palestinians and the end to that conflict and the occupation. And for sure... Even if it's just an appearance of an interest, it's still important for appearance's sake. Well, the, right. I mean, some some constituents of those regimes really do care about it and have put their money where their mouth is. And, and, and they're the... Um, I have in mind some of the wealthy members of these royal families who have spent a lot of, of their charitable donations on Palestinian causes. Um, it's not it's not a dead issue in those societies, right? right? There are and there is also a community of Palestinians living in the in, in the United Arab Emirates. And, you know, they're not tiny. Uh, they're obviously not voting, but still there's an awareness uh, of the prominence yeah, they, of the issue. Uh, yeah, they don't have a ton of political power, but but it is a it is still a meaningful issue. Um, and the other one that I think is really uh, a good wedge into starting this conversation with them is the international uh, rules-based order. That is something that benefits them in their uh, in their conflict with Iran, in their desire to see uh, Iran not acquire nuclear weapons, even in the, the, the wars that they're involved in, for example, in Yemen, uh, international rules and order help uh, help their their cause. And that's something where if they see uh, if, if they see putting that into uh, normalization accords uh, also helps de-escalate the conflicts that they care about. Um, that is a way a way in, and 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 I think that's that's plausible, um, and it would require the United States to make that a real central plank as well, which I think it's haltingly uh, uh, starting to do a little bit since Biden came into office. I wouldn't say there's been a, a real sea change in that, but I I suspect the invasion of Ukraine is going to give a lot of credence uh, and momentum to uh, powerful uh, American political forces that do want to see uh, an international rules-based order built or rebuilt or, or sort of re-energized. Well, I'd like to hope, but I also want to go back to uh, one of the things you said. I agree with you. There's certainly, you know, there's some of these four aims that are that are really unlikely under the Abraham Accords. I would say the number one least likely is, is democratization. I think you, you essentially implied that as well. But I do want to take another minute to talk about the possibility of demilitarization with Iran. Now, I say demilitarization. I don't think anybody's going to drop their, you know, <laughs> uh, dis dismantle their armies. But I do think that if nothing, I mean, you know, we are all in a rapidly changing sort of understanding of the world uh, based on what's going on in Russia and Ukraine right now. And the fact that a day before we recorded this, there is a sudden sense that there could be, not just a sense, that Mr. Putin has, has brought the nuclear threat back into the world 
I think that this should, I, I'd like to hope that any rational person realizes now that it is more important than ever to contain the spread of nuclear weapons, certainly through diplomacy, and therefore it is there is greater urgency than ever to reach a diplomatic arrangement with Iran. Now, that may also sound aspirational, but these talks are underway. We don't know where, what's going to happen with them right now. But it might highlight to the states of the region, including the Gulf states, that this is not the time to be ratcheting up the threat of a military you know, escalation with Iran, uh, because it's not turning out very well in Europe. And the other thing we should remember is that quite quietly over the last year or so, there have been some unexpected, if very low key kinds of contacts and a little bit of the word, the D word has even been mentioned. And by that, I mean dialogue. Um, there have been sort of off record, maybe written, maybe unwritten agreements back in 2019 between the Emirates and Iran uh, about a certain kind of arrangement about who gets to attack whom and where. I'm not going to say it's perfect. It's very dangerous. It almost has heated up earlier, uh, just a few months ago, but they do have a channel of communication. Um, and there have been four different rounds of conversations between Saudi, Saudi Arabia and Iran over the last year. I don't know if these are going to go on, but they do indicate something. Uh, and that something, uh, kind of eats away at the idea that there, there's a sort of Middle Eastern iron wall between the two blocks and they don't speak to each other. They may have interest in, in speaking to one another. They may realize that there is a greater need for diplomacy because they have obviously opened the channels to do it. And I think the Abraham Accords, you know, the fact that there is a bit of a bridge here, this may be going really out on a limb, but this they could become a vessel to you know, get messages across, put it that way, in ways that do not involve necessarily blowing up ships in the, you know, in the Gulf or uh, proxy wars. Yeah. And of course, one of the underlying problems here is that a lot of the US uh, uh, and Israeli and Gulf supporters of these accords are genuinely not interested in things like demilitarization and diplomacy. Uh, some are, but many are not. And, and so we end up with this sort of fractured constituency where um, uh, certainly in the United States, a lot of the hard right supporters of the Accords, this is the, e the end of the process, right? They see recognition of Israel as the end point and they're not interested in anything that comes after. Um, and that actually leads me to uh, my... Next question for you. Uh, you know American politics really well. Who is it? What is the basis of this broad support uh, for the accords? And and I'll note that although these were were sort of transactionally put together by Trump and his son-in-law, it seems that that the Biden administration and, and the president himself are are quite uh, simpatico with these accords as well. So how is it that that they have such a broad uh, constituency, and who is uh, or what is the appetite for uh, a progressive critique of of what's wrong with the accords as they stand? now? Well, it's hard to say from any insider perspective. I mean, I think I can tell you that there's been such a desperate sense of atrophy in the region and, you know, demoralizing sense that no peace is possible. And it's this kind of frozen, uh, you know, uh, recalcitrant region where nobody wants to talk to each other for historic reasons. And that the idea of a breakthrough, the idea of people shaking hands and forging open diplomatic relations where there weren't before, I think is extremely appealing uh, in a region that is so fraught and, and where there have been hot conflicts and very violent conflicts over the course of just the last decade. So I don't think this is like because one person is you know driving forward the idea that the Abraham Accords are a good thing. I think intuitively everybody sees them as a good thing unless they understand uh, some of the 
you know, really troubling and, and problematic uh, uh, processes that they that they undermine that they deepen in the region, such as undermining peace, et cetera. And so I think that in terms of the Biden administration, you know, who would be interested in advancing a progressive foreign policy? Well, I would say that would be the Biden foreign policy team. I mean, they have essentially projected that they are, you know, com- they are they are completely different from the Trump administration. They want to develop, uh, you know, lead America in a progressive direction, which is very tricky in terms of American domestic politics. But they also try to redefine what foreign policy means, or at least. I think that they've, you know, uh, projected that that's what they want to try to do. We know, of course, that one of the biggest successes of the Biden administration so far has been reviving multilateralism and reviving America's leadership role. And I think that, you know, for all of that, uh, the Russia-Ukraine situation is a disaster. I think the American government uh, and the foreign policy team does deserve credit for having worked hard, even if it was sometimes behind the scenes, to bring, you know, the European allies together uh, and the NATO allies together in very, very tricky ways. Uh, but in some very even ways that we wouldn't have predicted even a few weeks ago uh, to develop really severe, uh, you know, sanctions against Russia and develop united policies when they had very competing interests. And so, yes, they are trying to advance, for example, multilateralism and strengthen the international system uh, because they they realize the importance of that. I don't I don't know if they have developed the critical eye towards this seemingly kind of celebratory uh, atmosphere around the Abraham Accords, to be able to say, well, uh, we need to repurpose them. I do think that the uh, Biden foreign policy team is fully aware that the problem with it is that it marginalizes the Palestinians. I don't think that, you know, this is a very smart team when it comes to Middle East, uh, Israeli-Palestinian dynamics. There can be no question that they are, you know, fully aware of the danger that this, you know, removes any incentive for Israel to actually move ahead with Israeli-Palestinian conflict resolution. But I'd like to think that up until now, um, they have been more focused on the Vienna talks and hoping to, you know, to work very delicately with Israel to earn some sort of uh, tolerance on Israel's part of whatever accords might come out of it. And so they haven't pushed Israel too hard uh, on the Israeli-Palestinian front. It, you, know, you can call it a devil's bargain, but it is you know, uh, the reality of politics. And I think that Depending on what happens in Vienna, you know, especially with the war in Russia and Ukraine, at some point the Vienna talks are going to end, for better or for worse. Uh, I would pref- personally prefer a revival of an agreement, uh, but it may not happen. And if it doesn't happen, or whether it does or doesn't happen, I think at that point America will have to say, what is our agenda with Israel and Palestine? We need to go back to this issue. We need to revisit this issue. We no longer need Israel's, you know, uh, acquiescence to some sort of demand either that they accept an accord uh, or the. Uh, talks have fallen apart and we no longer need Israel's help to, you know, to, to, uh, advance an accord. And then they're going to have to have, you know, face the question of what is, what is within our toolbox? What do we have in our toolbox to revive some sort of vision for political resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict instead of <clears throat> settling for what they have settled for now consciously, which is economic development, you know, this concept of shrinking the conflict, which is, which is what we used to call conflict management, which is never going to provide a resolution to the conflict. I mean, I think I think Dahlia, this uh, this problem goes right to the heart of of why progressives have been kind of weak on making a muscular case for a different approach. Uh, to have a real shift towards a progressive approach towards the Middle East uh, and the Abraham Accords would require uh, substituting short term transactionalism for long long term vision, right? And of course, we're, we don't live in a pie in the sky world. There were, are always going to be realistic trade-offs and, and transactions in any foreign policy. But right now we're living and we've been living really through 
Democratic and Republican administrations in a very transactional short-term mindset where security and energy concerns always trump all else. Um, and the Abraham Accords in that framework aren't really so much about diplomacy instead of conflict. They're about a block of recalcitrant American partners who, by banding together, are gaining leverage to defy U.S. policy priorities in the region and the world. Um, and a counterpoint wouldn't be to sort of scuffle, uh, 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 to you know, wouldn't be to to sort of reject these relationships or or turn them into confrontations or get everyone's back up over democracy promotion. But it would entail the United States very clearly saying we have a coherent worldview. We believe in denuclearization. We believe in diplomacy over conflict. We believe in de-escalating with Iran, uh, preventing them from getting nuclear weapons, de-escalating in Yemen ending the occupation in, in Palestine and so on. And these are all part of a coherent worldview, some more readily achievable than others, but we have a coherent story to tell about why all these things fit together. And we can argue, whether our partners believe it or not, that it is in their long-term interest as well to promote these things. They might lose one or two short-term bargains, but they'll get a huge boost in long-term security if they uh, sign up for these kinds of long-term progressive policy goals. Uh, and I think it's it's really helpful that you've dug really deep into the roots and the and the potential of the Abraham Accords, and you've spelled out what a a progressive turn would look like for them. And even if neither of us think that's that's really imminent, some of those some of those goals are achievable, and uh, and and all of them are in in the long run. Uh, Dahlia, thank you so much uh, for coming on the podcast. Thanks for hosting this great conversation. You can read Dahlia's report at the Century Foundation's website. That's tcf.org, the Century Foundation. Uh, we are Century International, the International Affairs Research Center at the Century Foundation in New York. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. You've been listening to me in conversation with Dahlia Scheinlin uh, speaking from Tel Aviv. I'm in New York City. Uh, thank you so much for listening. TCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation, a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about the work that TCF does, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook.